This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media businesses matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Zintner. In this week's episode, we continue our local media series with an interview with Neil Chase. Neil is the executive editor of the Bay Area News Group, which runs the San Jose Mercury News and the East Bay Times. He's also a University of Michigan and Michigan Daily alum who chairs the board for student publications at his alma mater. He's here to talk about the changes he's seen during his tenure as the leader of a local newsroom. Neil Chase, welcome to Media Business Matters. Thanks. Good to be here. Before we went on the air, you talked about what happened to local newspapers as an existential crisis. And in our intro to this series, we kind of talked about it in a similar way. So why do you think that's a case? And can you tell us the story about what happened to local newspapers from your perspective, highlighting a few key parts of it? Sure. The the existential crisis to local journalism is the fact that the business model has changed so much in the past 20 years. You know, 20, 25 years ago, uh, the local newspaper was the only place to look for a job, the only place to look for a car for sale or to sell your car, the only place to find out what was on sale at the local department store this weekend, the only place to find out what the local city council was doing this week. That has changed so dramatically uh, in the past 20 years, perhaps most clearly uh, explained by the drop in advertising revenue. Newspaper advertising is down 80% in the last 20 years from a peak of $67 billion in 1999 and 2000 to somewhere around 12 or $13 billion now. It's not tracked very well because nobody even cares anymore, which is frightening on its own. Newspaper circulation is down significantly. Both, both circulation and ad revenue are at the same levels they were at in the 1940s and 50s, adjusted for inflation on the ad revenue. What has happened is a monopoly business that was the only place to get certain kinds of information has become a business that only survives if the news it's doing is compelling enough to the readers and the readers are willing to pay for it. And that is a transformational change, an existential threat, and I hope also a a pretty good opportunity. What do you think is most misunderstood by the, the population in general about sort of the story of what has happened to local newspapers? I think a lot of people are not aware of the degree to which the business model has changed. I spend a lot of time talking to readers, uh, groups of readers, community meetings, people who write me letters or call me. When I share the numbers, the statistics about how much the industry has changed, people are shocked. They have trouble believing that an institution they grew up with is uh, is changing so much and so drastically. And that's the audience of people who are 50, 60, 70 years old who are still reading a print newspaper every day. When you look at people under 50, very few of them read a print newspaper, although many of them consume the news done in print newsrooms. To them, the most shocking thing is that online advertising revenue doesn't pay the bills. There's not a media company around that is making enough money off of online advertising to see a rosy long-term future just based on the ad revenue. And so when you go to people and say, I can only survive if you're going to pay me for what I do, just like we did in the old days of print, uh, some people get it, and a lot of other people have trouble adjusting to that reality. In looking through the the different newsrooms that you've been in, it's largely what we'd probably characterize as major markets. There are cities that also have local television news. Is the story different for local newspapers in those smaller markets that are, let's say, on the periphery of communities served by 
uh, local television stations? It is different in smaller communities. In a large metro area, in many cases where the local newspaper has started to do far less local coverage than it did before, other entities are jumping in, whether that's uh, a new startup doing hard news or something like City Bureau in Chicago, which is getting citizens to cover local government meetings or journalism schools, local papers, the Michigan Daily becoming the one print daily in Washtenaw County that actually covers the news. The smaller towns don't necessarily have these many as many alternatives. There are small community papers that are doing well because they're locally owned. The local owner is not insisting on a massive profit margin but simply wants a healthy business uh, and is willing to adapt as needed to make that business work because they're there to serve the community. And then you have large metro dailies like mine owned by out-of-town investors who have no interest in journalism or anything other than cash flow where it's very possible the the local news business here goes away entirely and is replaced only to the extent that some of the TV stations and smaller outlets can, can do that work. There are certainly more alternatives in larger markets than in the smaller ones. You've talked quite a bit about tensions with your owner, Digital First Media, and the hedge fund that owns it. And because of job cuts you've had to implement, including standing in solidarity with, with the Denver Post, who has used their editorial page to criticize Digital First for the job cuts that they've had to implement. What makes this ownership situation different than those in the past, and what has brought up your feeling on the matter? There are probably three different ownership models in the industry these days. There are different variations, of course, but one is the investing company, the investment, the hedge fund, the investor company, the, the folks who bought a newspaper because a newspaper is a wonderful source of cash. You have thousands of people who are getting print subscriptions, who've wanted those print subscriptions, and will keep getting them as long as they can. That's a tremendous generator of cash, as are some of the assets and things that the business has. Newspapers often have buildings and different real estate holdings and equipment and things that can be sold off to, to turn into cash. So it's a good investment for a value investor who wants to take some of the money out. The second category is the media company, the company that is in the media business, certainly trying to make a profit and run a healthy business and therefore has to make some cuts and be aggressive, but is doing the development work. You look at a company like Gannett or McClatchy or some of the other companies that own local news organizations in this country, and yes, they are being careful about their spending and cutting back, but they're also doing a lot of development work. They're coming up with new formats. They're finding new revenue streams. They're trying to build a successful business for the future. And then the third category would be local ownership, which is anything from the family who's owned the small town paper for 200 years and keeps publishing it to the Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post or John Henry with the Boston Globe or Glenn Taylor who bought the Star Tribune in Minneapolis, people who spend a lot of money to buy a local paper and want to make that business work. Uh, the latest is in Los Angeles where Patrick Soon Chong has bought the LA Times for a price that everybody, including him, would agree is an overpayment in order to make journalism happen there. And the difference is if you're not owned by somebody who wants to continue the journalism business at a challenging time like this, it's hard to see how that business continues more than a few more years. Is the phenomenon of that first group, the investor company, is, is that new? I and mean, I guess in tracing 
the history of the concerns about newspaper ownership from an academic side, you know, there's a, a pretty long history at this point of being concerned about the media companies and the, the rise of the Gannett and McClatchy's. Uh, is it just that that investor behavior didn't exist before now? You know, it's funny, 20, 30 years ago, as companies like Gannett started buying up more and more newspapers, uh, Media News, the, the forerunner of this company, was buying up newspapers. And all of us in the business thought, wow, these companies are coming in, they're buying up these papers, they're cutting the costs, they're, they're laying people off, this is terrible, they're destroying journalism. We didn't know what it would be like for someone to come in who didn't even want to be in the journalism business. I think the phenomenon of hedge funds or value investors buying newspaper properties is relatively new, let's say the last 20 years. Not that investors haven't come in and out of the business over, over many decades. But the idea that you could buy a newspaper company because it had tremendous assets and was run in an old-fashioned model, uh, you know, we had lots of employees who were doing old-style clerical jobs that, uh, that don't need to exist anymore in a, in a new economy kind of a company. The opportunity for these value investors to come in and buy a company with tremendous assets and a great cash flow, but very little prospect for the future if the business doesn't change, I think is a relatively new phenomenon. Where have the losses at your organization been felt the most? The, the losses in this business, um, it, it's funny because the financial model is very strong. Right? This company's making a lot of money. When I show people the financials of the company, they're shocked because they say, oh, I thought newspapers were in trouble. The losses that we've seen are in personnel and coverage and assets. So when you sell off as much of the real estate as you can, uh, you then have fewer offices and it's harder to cover a large geographic area. When you sell off as much of the press capacity as you can, you're down to the minimum possible press capacity and something goes wrong with the press one night, the paper might not get out. If you look at your staffing and you say, what do I need to get the paper out? What's the minimum number of people I need to have in this room to make a newspaper come out tomorrow? That's very different from asking, what's the minimum number of people I need to do good journalistic coverage of this area and get the paper out? And I think that's the difference between what we're seeing at some of the aggressive media companies that are trying to build a healthy business and certainly are cutting, and the companies like ours that are cutting much more aggressively. It's taking away so many of the people from the news operation that the coverage no longer says to readers, we're paying attention to your community. I'll give you an example. Here in the San Francisco Bay Area, we have about 101 cities, a little over 100 cities in the region that we cover. And among those cities, between city councils and school boards and special water districts and zoning and all that, you've got about 500 governmental units. There's no way to cover all 500 of those governmental units. But if you live in one of those smaller cities, let's say you live in a city of 40,000 people, an affluent city in Silicon Valley, you expect that there's a local news organization that's paying attention to what your city council's doing, what your school board's doing, what developers are doing with the land in your community, that sort of thing. And if we can't staff those individual communities and tell people what's going on there, then the readers start to look at the paper and say, well, there's some nice regional stories here, and it's good to know what's happening with the air quality in the region and things like that, but who's covering my local city government? And they get upset. These readers, especially the older readers, they want what the newspaper used to have. They want the 
the schedule for the meeting of the garden club. They want the pictures of the kids who won the high school awards. They won high school sports, for sure. And that's the kind of stuff that a local paper always gave to their readers and that we can't do. As a group of 100-plus journalists trying to cover uh, uh, an area of 8 million people, the the loss, I think, is measured differently by different people. I think there's a lot of journalists who would like to be doing more important, more breaking news, more things that are essential to the operation of government. I think there's a lot of citizens who would just like to know what the neighbors are doing and, um, and when the uh, Boy Scout troop is meeting. In terms of the fact that your, your balance sheet is looking good, which is great news, are you relying on the same revenue streams as historically has been the case, or you know, how has that side of the business changed for you? The revenue streams have changed in a couple ways. Uh, newspapers across the country, not just mine, but newspapers across the country have managed to keep their circulation revenue relatively steady by raising prices as the number of copies distributed every day went down. There's a lot of work that goes into the planning and the algorithms that decide how much you can raise a price on each individual customer. And to date, that has helped a lot of papers to keep their circulation revenue steady. It used to be that circulation revenue was maybe 15, 20% of your company's revenue. Uh, now at a lot of companies, it's 30, 40, 50%. The advertising revenue has gone down sharply. When I try to explain that to people, I show them pictures of some of the big advertisers that we used to have, like Sears, which is all but out of business at this point, closing a lot of stores, Toys R Us, which is closing its last stores, and stores like Circuit City and Sports Authority and Levitt's Furniture, and you know, going way back, lots of these retailers whose uh, pre-printed ads were in every Sunday paper across the country are just gone, and the ones who are still around are spending less on newspaper advertising and more on some of the direct marketing you can do online. So the advertising revenue has gone down sharply. The circulation revenue has stayed somewhat flat. And there's a whole new category, digital advertising revenue, which is certainly going up and is a reason that the company is doing well on the revenue side. But a lot of that digital advertising revenue has nothing to do with our publications. When my team sells a digital advertising or marketing package, it is selling a package that probably includes some Google products and some Facebook products and some distribution through different ad exchanges around the country. And some of those ads may or may not end up on our sites. But it's a very different business at most media companies selling online marketing uh, that could be done whether or not you have a newspaper. And that's the... That's the growth area for media companies, but it doesn't help the the newsroom side of the business. What other sources of revenue have you experimented with? I know you guys have um, digital subscriptions. You've been doing some town halls or there are other maybe social media related experiments. And have they been successful for you? There's a lot of experimenting going on both here and at newspaper companies across the country with things like events. There are some startups where events are their primary revenue source. There are lots of ancillary products and always have been. We uh, we have a service now where if we run an obituary for a family member, you can get a copy of that obituary on a nice plaque that you can then put up on the wall. Strange as that may sound, a lot of people like to buy those. But those are all relatively small revenue streams. The thing that we've learned uh, in the past couple of years of spending a lot of time studying the newspaper industry, looking at other news organizations, the Knight Foundation has helped us meet with other news organizations and and share a lot of information on business models and and what works and what doesn't work, is this new focus on digital subscriptions. 
Uh, it's been tried before, off and on. But now, with a combination of the New York Times, Washington Post success and some other folks, the ability to have the technology to make the subscriptions work and the support from Google and Facebook and some other folks on, on selling subscriptions, it is the first time in the past 20 years that an editor has been able to stand up in front of the newsroom and say, you've waited 20 years for the ad folks to come up with a new model to save this business. It hasn't happened. But now we have one on the editorial side, and it's a digital subscription. If we write stuff that's good enough, people will subscribe. And if they subscribe, we'll make enough money to run the business at a nice profit. There are some very good models that show here's what it would take to run a news organization at a healthy profit on a digital subscription basis, even if all of the advertising and circulation revenue went away. The good news is, is those models work. They're they're being proven at some other places, and we're starting to grow ours. And, and uh, I have no doubt that we could run this business at a healthy margin, keep journalism alive and well in the Bay Area and, and all the communities around the country with people willing to subscribe as long as the journalism is good enough to be compelling and people want to buy what we're writing. The downside of that is it's a much smaller model. Right, so a company making a couple hundred million dollars in revenue right now and keeping, say, 40 million of that as profit in a digital subscription model without print, without circulation, without print advertising, instead of 200 million, you might be taking in 40 million. And instead of 40 million in profit, you might be making 4 million in profit, right? A nice 10% margin, but a far smaller business than the current one. So for the next owner, for somebody who wants to start something new for, for, the benevolent business person who wants to run a healthy business and make sure journalism continues in the community, I think there probably is a digital subscription model that works. But for the current company that's making hundreds of millions of dollars to be told, hey, you can still have a successful business, you just have to get rid of a huge chunk of your cash flow, is not a very attractive proposition. You're also the chairman of the board at the Office of Student Publications here at University of Michigan. And a quote from a fellow Daily alum of ours, Rebecca Blumenstein, caught my eye recently. She said, um, there are some people who think that college newspapers could be the solution to local news deserts. Do you think that's the case? Um, I do. She and I have talked about that. And there's actually a story out today from the Pointer Institute um, talking about college newspapers serving as local news organizations in some places where they don't have as much news. There was a, a newspaper strike in Detroit at one point. Uh, one of the ideas was that the Michigan Daily should start distributing papers in Detroit to uh, to have news there while the papers were on strike. And then when the Ann Arbor News uh, went out of the daily newspaper business, the, the, the Michigan Daily suddenly became the, the one paper in Washtenaw County. There's a tremendous opportunity for a college paper to cover a community. One of the dirty little secrets at the Michigan Daily is that a large part of the circulation is already faculty and staff. Right? If you look at Ann Arbor, it's uh, uh, there are a lot of students there, but there's also a lot of faculty and staff and people affiliated with the university one way or another. And so the Daily already serves a big part of that community. And if, and we very well might, if we were to change the marketing message and the coverage and the approach of the Daily to say, hey, this should be Ann Arbor's newspaper. Let's put out Ann Arbor's newspaper, as the uh, the journalism school at Missouri does in Columbia, Missouri, and some other places. That could be a fascinating evolution of the business, something worth a close look. But even short of that, there are a lot of stories that people in Ann Arbor care about that are covered by the Michigan Daily. And so the idea that the paper could become more and more relevant to the to the people who live there is, uh, I think, very much realistic and uh, and worth a close look. 
Yeah, in many ways, it ties back to one of our earliest episodes in which we talked about this book from a French media economist. It was called Saving the Media, and her name's Julia Cage, and, and she was making an argument you know, that sort of brought these institutions like education and journalism together. And mind you, of course, the Europeans do tend to think of these things a little more holistically than, than Americans do. But you know, her argument was really societies pay to educate their, their children and, and to turn people into productive citizens, and that journalism fits that mandate. And that you know, is a good justification for connecting the state with funding journalism as well. And, you know, in some ways, that notion of Michigan, the public institution, the broader mission of, of serving maybe the Ann Arbor area, maybe, you know, the state more broadly with journalism is, I think, something that fits together very logically, even though that's just not how we've structured our media business in the states to date. You are absolutely right. There was just a a bill passed in the legislature in New Jersey to invest $5 million in experiments towards sustaining local journalism uh, and doing that through a consortium of uh, journalism schools and colleges in, in New Jersey which everybody did a double take around. You know, wait, the government's putting money into the media business? But, of course, as you said, they do in other countries. Um, And it is very possible that 20 years from now we'll be regarding news as a public good that is primarily a nonprofit endeavor, at least local community news, and one that might be perfectly appropriately supported by governments or by local foundations. There's a lot of money in the philanthropic world that came out of media companies in the first place. There are companies like the, the, the organizations like the Knight Foundation that are built with the profits from many years of running news organizations that are now investing in journalism. And then when you get to a place like the Michigan Daily, there are millions of dollars in the bank, several million dollars in the bank, that are the Michigan Daily's profits and some gifts that were given uh, from the first 125 years of operation that put the Daily in an enviable position. If, if I was sitting on every dollar that the San Jose Mercury News had ever made and I had that available to invest in rebuilding the media business here, I'd be the happiest guy on earth. We actually had that opportunity at, at, at the Michigan Daily, which is uh, something I think we're going to dig into deeply over the next few months, um, thinking about how to rebuild that business and expand it and, and change it. I think all options for journalism are on the table, and it's it's both a terrifying time and an exciting time, um, depending on how you look at it. And I usually look at it both ways at least five or ten times a day. I think as we came into this series and the focus on local media, we started it from a a belief that it was all going to be bad and, and worse news. It's a very bleak story. That's kind of the perspective that we were went in looking at it. You know, how would you assess it? You know, why is the glass half full and why is it half empty? Boy, the glass is half full and half empty. Um, it's actually almost full up to the rim and it has holes all the way up and down it. Uh, and we're filling it up as fast as we can and the holes keep getting bigger. The, the, the glass is, is a mess. But at the end of the day, people still want the news, right? And these days, given what's going on in the news, I think we see that more than ever. And people are consuming news to a tremendous degree. College students read a ton of news. They they don't get it on paper, but they get it uh, through multiple sources, and they get it online. And people aren't relying on one or two news organizations. When I grew up in Washington, D.C., we got two newspapers a day. There were three local news stations, one of which was our favorite that we watched all the time, and that's where we got all of our news. And today I'm getting my news from 25, 30 different sources every morning before I have my first cup of coffee. 
the media business has changed and the financial model is challenging, but the, the appetite for news, the need for news, the desperate need for journalism in a, in a well-functioning democracy and especially in a dysfunctional democracy, uh, is, is tremendous. When you see that much need, you have to know there's going to be a way to solve it. You also have to know that we're going to have to work very hard to figure out those models and that it's the folks who really care about solving it who are going to solve it. Uh, which is why if you work for a company that doesn't seem committed to solving it, you feel a little less optimistic. And if you work for a company that's committed to solving it or an owner who's committed to solving it, then I think you feel like, okay, I've got the support now. It's up to me to go out and figure it out. Neil Chase, thank you very much for joining us on Media Business Matters. Thanks for having me. It's an important conversation. And that's it for this edition of Media Business Matters. If you want to learn more about our show, you can go to amandalots.com and click on the podcast link at the top of the page. If you want new episodes delivered into your feed as soon as they're available, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe on Apple Podcasts and on Google Podcasts. You can find Amanda Lotz on Twitter at DrTVLotz, that's D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z. You can find Neil Chase on Twitter at Chase Neil, that's Chase, N-E-I-L. And you can find me at Alex Entner, that's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back soon with the next entry in our local media series.